Uh, I don't know if you've got one of these in uh, your little folder this morning, but it's Psalm 34. And a lot of the songs that we sang this morning relate to Psalm 34, uh, especially Let Us Exalt His Name. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, is Psalm 34. But before we can get there, we have to kind of build a foundation to understand what, uh, what made David write this psalm, what, what was uh, given to him uh, in a form uh, that really spoke to his heart, that through the guidance of the Holy Spirit uh, wrote this psalm. Again, I just want to thank all you who are here this morning, uh, you moms who uh, are raising little ones or who have raised, or ones that are grandmas and have Little grandchildren, big grandchildren. Uh, I look out here at Keaton, and the family is gathered together, and I'm just so blessed to see everybody here and uh, know that uh, you're blessed by them being here as well. So uh, we're, we're glad. In Paul Bunyan's, or excuse me, in Bunyan's great allegory, I always get that messed up. It's not Paul Bunyan. See those little kid stories. In Bunyan's great allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, the incident is related of how Christian decides to leave the main highway and follow another path, which seemed easier. But this path leads him into a territory called Giant Despair, who owns Doubting Castle. Eventually, he is captured by Giant Despair and kept in a dungeon. He is advised to kill himself. The giant said, There was no use trying to keep on with his journey. For the time... It seemed as if despair had really conquered Christian. But then hope, Christian's companion, reminds him of a previous victory. So it came about that on Saturday, about midnight, they began to pray and continued in prayer until almost morning. Now a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, broke out into passionate speech and said, What a fool I am! I thus to lie in a stinking dungeon, when I may be as well at liberty. I have the key in my bosom called promise, that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that's good news. Good brother, pluck it out of your bosom and try. And he did, and the prison gates flew open. Have you ever felt imprisoned, or defeated, or maybe discouraged, or fearful, or uncertain? Have you ever been treated unfairly, or provoked without cause? Looking back to 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 through 22, 5, we see the real-life struggle of David, a man after God's heart, run ahead on into all these circumstances and emotions of life. At that time, his despair will become God's deliverance. But before we can get there, we have to look at what that despair stemmed from. What broke through in David's life that became the words of Psalm 34? Well, let's take a trip back into 1 Samuel, and if you have your Bibles in front of you, I'm just going to go over verses, excuse me, chapters 17 and following in a cursory way to kind of give you some foundation to build on uh, for when we get to Psalm 34. If we can recall 1 Samuel 17, we have the showdown between the armies of Israel and Gath. 
And there was a big man named Goliath taunting the enemy, taunting the Israelites. Now Goliath stood almost nine feet tall. He wore a coat of mail of 125 pounds, bronze leg armor, a shaft spear with a spearhead weighing almost 15 pounds, and a separate armor bearer walking ahead of him with his massive shield. For 40 days he shouted and taunted to the Israelite army each morning to come out and fight. At that time, David left his sheep and he goes into the camp. He hears that the reward is that whoever slays this Goliath will win the hand of his daughter. And there will be no taxes for him and the rest of his family. And also he would become a member of the royal family. David's confidence in God and not himself or the army bears that out in verse 37. That's where David meets Goliath. Goliath meets David's sling. And Goliath meets his death. In verses 52 to 54, David becomes the hero. Going on to Samuel 18, 1 Samuel 18, David becomes a good friend with Jonathan, the king's son. The cheers of the people for David become a heavy burden for King Saul. Saul becomes fearful of David's celebrity and popularity. But the king keeps his word and David marries one of the king's daughters. However, David's victories are now becoming more famous, not only with the people, but with the soldiers and the officers of the king. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 4, Saul's had enough. Saul lies to his son about David's future. In verse 11, Saul plots to kill David. But David's wife protects him and he escapes. Samuel prophesies and God's spirit fell on all the troops in verses 18 through 22. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, David appeals to Jonathan in verse 3. And Jonathan makes a covenant with David, verses 16 through 17. Saul becomes angry with Jonathan and reveals his true hate for David in verse 30 and 34. And towards the end, David and Jonathan go their separate ways. Now we come to chapter 21. It's funny, I looked up this word despair, and back in the 1828 dictionary of Webster's, this is how it reads. Hopelessness, a hopeless state and destitution of hope or expectation. We are not perplexed, we are perplexed but not despair. 2 Corinthians 4.8, this is in the Webster's dictionary. All safety and despair of safety placed. That which causes despair, that of which there is no hope. The mere despair of surgery, there's another example of it, uh, he cures. And here again, we despair even of life, 2 Corinthians 1.8. Again, from Webster's 1828 Dictionary. This is how it's defined in 2015, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. The feeling of no longer having any hope, someone or something that causes extreme sadness or worry. That's it. No reference to any biblical verses. Boy, have times changed in a hundred plus years. You see, David was at a point of despair. Saul was breathing down his neck. He was running for his life. 
But just some chapters before, David faced a giant that even the army was afraid of. What a contrast. So what does David do? He runs to the land of the Philistines, the land that he conquered, the foe that he defeated, to hide. And he becomes more desperate. Have you ever been in that place? Where you face something that's unexpected? Maybe a diagnosis. Maybe a lost loved one. Maybe you lost your job at work. Family is just in turmoil. But I don't think many of us in this room have ever been in despair for our own life. When reading the title of this psalm, it's David who was writing it. And he was being pursued by Saul, who was enraged by his existence. So David sought shelter in the nearest land he could. Unfortunately, it was the land of his enemies. As we read in 1 Samuel, it wasn't long before the Philistines discovered who he was. And they remembered the chanting of the crowds. Saul killed thousands, but David his tens of thousands. I'm sure that made Saul a little uneasy. He was then summoned to be brought before King Abimelech. And David knew that if he was found out to be a spy, he would face immediate execution. So what did David do? Did he pray to the Lord as he did with Goliath? Did he go forward and say, my strength is not in myself but in God? No. He pretends to be crazy. He portrayed himself as a madman, knowing that to execute such a person in his diminished capacity would serve the king no purpose. So he is pretty safe. And faking. He may have thought that he outwitted the king, but it was no surprise to God. He was as human as we are and used his own wisdom to escape his possible demise. But after his release, his thoughts, however, turned back to who his true deliverer was. Now, we cannot justify David's deception, but we surely can understand his circumstances. Let's just take a moment of prayer. Father, we just thank you so much for allowing these words to be in your word. Father, it gives us hope that in our humanness, Lord, there are some stupid things we usually do to escape uh, difficulties. But Father, we thank you that we have an example through David's struggle and finally the victory that you gave to him, that he penned these words to the psalm. And Father, we thank you for those words. We look forward, Father, to how you're going to open the hearts of those who are here and minister to the needs that exist in this room. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, Steve said, you know, we want you to come into this place with trouble on your heart. We want you to come into this place that you're struggling with. Not that I'm any person to give you any kind of promises, but it's the Word of God that brings those promises to your heart. 
God promises great blessings to his people, but many of these blessings require our active participation. This psalm exposes David's true heart and dependence on God for his protection and his deliverance. And as he seeks God, God meets him right where he's at. And as we read through this psalm, I hope we're encouraged as David was and understanding that it is by God's hand that we are delivered, not by our own hand. And we're going to go through systematically of this psalm as we go through here. But I want to assure you that, first of all, God is aware of all our circumstances. He knows the trials that we will face before we even face them. They're trials that are going to take place in our lives that we don't even know about. He sees our imperfections. He knows our weaknesses. He understands our fears, our expectations, our anxieties. He even understands our foolishness. In all our shortcomings, God still keeps his promises. He makes his provision, and he protects those who are his. Remember this, becoming a fool in man's eyes for God's sake is very different than becoming a fool in God's eyes for man's sake. Wouldn't you agree? As we look to this psalm, the heading of the psalm relates to David's plight, which he says, and it states, that David feigns his madness to escape. But in your outlines in front of you, we're going to go through five different places of the psalm, and I've split them up as you can see. The praise of God, the provision, the providential care, the perspective, and the protection. The praise of God. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Sounds familiar. We just sang that song. Psalm 150 says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with a trumpet sound. Praise him with a lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipes. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. I like that one. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. David starts out by praising God. Although it was his choice to change his behavior and deceive the king and protect his life, it was God's mercy that enabled his escape. What's God's mercy? It's God's withholding what we deserve. The mercy God expressed was such that David did not receive what was according to his flesh, but rather he expresses ultimate praise for God's mercy for his deliverance in spite of his foolishness and deception. He opens the statement that he will extol or lift up the Lord at all times. And in your little handout there, I have the word all kind of highlighted because I want to make a point that it doesn't matter what we're going through at any given time. No matter what circumstance 
we find ourselves we find ourselves in he is always aware of them and if we're to spend eternity with god in his kingdom praising him now would seem appropriate as we're going to praise him then his boast was not in his own scheme to deceive the king but his boast is ultimately in the god that delivered him from this possible execution Here's three things for you. Praise God constantly. Don't blame God for your situation. Praise God openly. Don't take credit for the solution. And praise God heartily. Don't keep God's grace to yourself. I loved what Terry said this morning in sharing about his father. That's sharing God's grace with us about how God worked in his father's life. And we need to be aware of that in the circumstances and difficulties we find ourselves in, that God has gotten us through that, that we share God's grace and mercy with those who are struggling. Secondly, the provisions of God. Verses 4 through 7, I sought the Lord and he answered me. And delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him. And saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And delivers them. Doesn't that give you hope to hear those words? In Luke chapter 12 verses 22 And following to 31, it talks about God's provision. It says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, or what you'll put on it. For life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet, God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to your span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if so, God closed the grass which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow it's thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith, do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink or be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. In the craziness of our political world that we live in today so many people looking to a man to be a savior a man to have all the answers a single person to take steps forward but I just want to let you in on a secret whoever gets in God already knows whoever he allows to have that office God already knows and I'd rather put my trust in what he knows than the people that I don't know about regardless of what it is 
In verse 4, David looked for and waited for the Lord's answer to his prayer, as in many of the Psalms. We see this pattern in David's prayer life. Constantly and consistently seeking God's direction and comfort, his wisdom and his protection, his provision and his promise. In Psalm 40, we see a similar request. David states that he waits patiently for the Lord to hear and answer his prayer. The emphasis is not really on the patience, but rather that David waited solely and completely, trusting confidently by faith in the Lord's answer. Trusting to that degree removes any fears that he had or that we may have as well. Have you ever been in a place where you're waiting for God to answer a prayer? And you're praying fervently? A family situation many years ago, Shelley and I prayed for nine months for a situation. Nine months we prayed. We were consistent at that time. And we kept waiting and waiting. And finally God gave us a sense of, that's good. A sense of peace. Now the answer didn't come immediately, but some weeks later it did. And it spoke to our hearts, revealing that God's timing is not ours, but He hears. He knows. I know that there's some in this room that I know that have been praying for years for different things. God has answered some, and some He's saying, wait. But be assured, trusting in His answer, hopefully we'll remove the fear of what that prayer is about. Verse 5, deliverance from shame. Those who come to the Lord in humility and fear shall be transformed. When we look at the world for answers, we look into a dark abyss. We see competing logic, contradicting wisdom, lukewarm commitment. But when we look to God, it is from Him that we get true light and true direction. And our way is made both plain and direct. These that are spoken of that looked into God, unto God had their expectations raised. Their troubles didn't frustrate them. And their faces were not ashamed of their confidence in a holy God. As verse 4 says in verse 5, those who look to Him for help will be radiant with joy, but no shadow of shame will darken their faces. Second Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Verse 6, In my desperation I prayed, and the Lord listened. He saved me from all my troubles. This poor man could have been a person that others didn't look favorably on. He was not well respected in society. It can also mean a man that was humble in spirit. But no matter what the circumstances, God delights in hearing from such people and then displaying his provision by delivering such people. For God is no respecter of persons. He does not favor the wealthy over the poor, the famous over the infamous, or the intellectual over the simple. In Psalm 102, verse 17 the writer writes that he, God, shall regard the prayers of the destitute and shall not despise their prayers. Boy, that sure gives me hope in times of trouble. Have you ever been at your wit's end? You don't know what to do? And you cry out and say, God, I've had it. 
I'm at the end. And God says, good, that's where I want you to be. I want you to be at the end of yourself because that's where I can begin. But it takes humility. Also, verse 7 says, For the angel of the Lord is a guard. He surrounds and defends all who fear him. The phrase, the angel of the Lord, is a reference to God hovering around us as well as his heavenly messengers dispatched to protect us, which are under God's command to carry out his will. In this context, it also refers to their pre-incarnate Christ as well. As we are faced with many dangers, we need not look far away for deliverance. God is aware of all that is affecting us and understands our despair. With this assurance, we as believers should not fear, but rather put our fear in the God who is going to deliver us even in the most desperate of times. The praise of God, the provision of God, and now the providential care of God. Here's the definition. Foresight, especially the foresight and care which God manifests for his creatures. Hence, God himself regarded as exercising a constant, wise prescience. A manifestation of care and superintendence which God exercised over his creatures and even ordained by divine direction. How is it possible that we believe the God of creation who created all things doesn't understand the circumstances that we go through? He knows our thoughts before we even have them. He hears our words before we utter them. He understands our discomfort before we express it. And yet sometimes we doubt that God really knows. Verses 8 through 14. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil, your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. Romans 11, 33 through 36 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For he who has known the mind, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him, that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Verse 8, God is our refuge. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. These words, taste and see, do not, do not mean, hey, check out God's credentials and see if they're in order. But rather, it's a warm and caring invitation to trust in God and depend on His care. Take the time to have the patience to invest in God's Word and His promises. Israel's task was to attract other nations to God by their obedience to God's unfailing faithfulness. For that faithfulness, God promised to bless them abundantly. And when the other nations witnessed God's blessing, 
they would know that the true and living God was with them. It's no different than us today as a church, as an individual. How do your lives reflect God? When you're out in the workplace, shopping at the store, driving the freeway, does your attitude reflect God? Mine doesn't often, especially on the freeway. I'm very impatient. (laughs) Thank you, brother. But it's true. What we do in our day-to-day life reflects who we really are. Do we really believe God's faithfulness to us? Do we live like that? Do those around us notice any kind of difference in how we respond to various circumstances? Are we consistent? You know, you might be in a bad mood. You didn't get enough sleep last night. You're a little short-tempered. Somebody says something and boom, you fly off the handle. That happens. Other times you get enough sleep. You've been out and had a good dinner the night before, well-rested. Somebody does something and they go, ah, whatever. No big deal. Believe it or not, our attitude needs to be balanced no matter what. That's a tough one. Verses 9 through 10 says, Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. We say that we belong to the Lord, but do we really fear him? We say we believe in him, but do we act like it? We say that we're committed, but do we compromise our faith and weaken it in the world's eyes? The world does not need our help. And the world certainly doesn't need the help of non-committed Christians to view God in a distorted way. They have plenty of fuel for their disdain for God. If we fear Him as we ought to, then He will bless us abundantly. Fearing God is a call to awe and wonder, a call to worship, and a call to reverence. Do we do that in our lives? Many of us go through our life day to day and let our circumstances dictate how we act. God says, no, I don't care what circumstances you have thrown at you. I want you to act godly. I want you to act like my child. I want you to act like you really trust me. You really believe in me. You say you do every Sunday. You talk with people on Sunday. You tell them about me on Sunday. But what happens on Monday? Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Where is your consistency? Many Christians will face and are facing unbearable hardships and disturbing poverties in so many ways, but yet they still have enough spiritual nourishment to live for God. I was reading a little bit on Corey Tenboom, and I'm going to make a quote later on in her life. And you talk about somebody who was in a place of hardship. Nobody in this room could even come close, I don't believe, to anything compared to what she did. In her story, uh, I scratch my head because I, it's only by God's grace that she made it through and had the attitude that she did. Because in a situation, circumstance like that, there's, there's no way unless God was 
empowering me that I could do that. But she did. David is telling us that to have God is to have all we really need. God is all sufficient. How many of us here feel that we don't have everything we need? You know, every day we see commercials and advertisements. You know, I love, the, I love cars. I really love cars. And I just have a soft spot for looking for new cars and the kind of bells and whistles they, you know, uh, they have on them and all those different things. And I just love to look and love to look. And all of a sudden I'm starting to kind of go into a dream world going, wow, I wish I could have that. And then all of a sudden it's like, but do I really need that? I mean, we have a car sitting in front of our house. It's a year and a half old. It has 6,000 miles on it. We don't need a luxury car. We just need something to get around in. But do we really need it? Second question is, is it really good for me? That's a tough question. You can rationalize that all day long. Oh, absolutely it's good for me. I know it's good for me. I feel at peace about it. (laughs) Don't be so peaceful. The next one is, is it the right time? Boy, are we an impatient society or what? You go back and you look at when they were building buildings and bridges and so forth, and they take years. Now, if you don't get a bridge done or you know, a certain thing done in a certain amount of time, you're penalized. In my business, I work for different contractors that build these custom homes. And these homes are on a schedule because the people have moved out of their house, living somewhere else, they sign a contract for a certain amount of time, and then they have to move back in. Sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. Last week, these people want to move in at a certain date. We're there, the furniture's coming, and we're trying to still we're trying to clean. It's a madhouse. It wasn't the right time for me, but for them it was. For the contractor it was because he had he had to do it. So sometimes it's not the right time. Are we patient enough to wait? For the right time. But even if you've answered all three questions, yes. God may allow you to go without it. Why? To help your faith understand His sufficiency in everything. Verses 11 through 14 and still in the providential care of God. Come, O ye children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and who loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. Now David, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, teaches what it is to fear the Lord. He begins by teaching the young children. He knows that if they learn at an early age that when trouble arrives at their doorstep, they will be equipped to deal with it. Boy, I wish I could go back as a father and do that one over again. It's very important that we teach our children as soon as they are able to understand. David's tone is one that those children are to pay close attention to what he is about to tell them with the word listen or hearken. It describes an intensity Not only to hear, but to hear intently. 
and to apply what they hear. Many times we can quote verses out of the Bible. We know what they say. And we can rattle them off one after the other. But do we take them to heart? Do we apply them to our lives? Although David was a famous musician, a learned statesman, and a victorious soldier, he did not teach them how to play a harp, how to deliver a speech, or even how to wield a sword. He goes right to the foundation on which all those things rest. Teach them the ways of the Lord. How does that begin? By fearing the Lord. Hello? Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good things, that is the question that's answered in the next two verses. David says, Guard what you say. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Many of us are familiar with James chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. It says, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Wow. Whether you hear it on the radio television, or some other way. We have become a society of communication. I don't know how many kids can survive without doing this all day long. You know, I don't even know what Twitter is. I mean, I know what Twitter is, but I don't know what tweeting is. All I've never tweeted, you know. I remember my daughter, when they moved up to Oregon, and they're in the corporate world, and they moved up there, and about three weeks after they moved up there, they went to a, a little coffee shop. And their inclination in a coffee shop, as many as you know, is to pull out their thing and start doing this, right? Well, they looked around, and nobody was doing it. And they went, uh-oh. They took them, they put them in their pocket, and guess what? They had a conversation with each other. Can you believe that? I love the commercial when there's two people sitting across from each other, and they're going like this, and the other one looks, okay, hold on. And they're talking to each other by texting. We've lost that. But I'm saying that to say this. What we say has a lot of weight, has a lot of bearing. The way in which we say it also. That little rudder in our mouth can encourage or destroy. Can uplift or tear down. And it's such a small little thing. Secondly, guard what you do. Turn from evil and do what is good. Ephesians 5, 18 through 13. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you're in the light. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of such things that they do not that are not in secret. They do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Every day we get up and we go to our job or we go uh, take our kids to school. We talk with people. Uh, we have different functions we go to, committees maybe. 
than we hear a lot of chatter. Do you jump in or do you kind of stand aside? Guard what you do. And thirdly, guard how you live. It says in 14, seek peace and pursue it. If we were to go next door to your neighbor and say, what kind of person is so-and-so, what would they say? Oh, man, don't cross him, boy. I've heard them, him and his wife, they argue all the time. Man, they come unglued. Man, it's crazy. Or I saw him the other day, some guy was walking down the street and he didn't like, he yelled at him. Oh, by the way, he goes to Grace Bible Church. Uh Uh-oh. Guard how you live. Verses 15 through 18, the perspective of God. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil and are cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the heartbroken and saves the crushed in spirit. We'll go through one by one because these are important to understand. God sees things from a different vantage point. His perspective is not ours. He sees things from eternity past to eternity future. Verse 15 says, His eyes are attentive. He sees all things, but focuses on His children especially. The eyes of the Lord symbolize His care and protection to those who are His own, those that are committed to Him, those that know Him personally. His ears are listening. In Psalm 18, 6, it says, In my distress I called to the Lord, I cried to Him for help. From His temple He heard my voice, my cry came before Him into His ears. His ears are all hearing, especially to the cries of the righteous. His listening ear is always close in order to comfort his own with a sense of compassion and care. His face is just. God will turn away from those that are disobedient and rebellious. He will leave them to their own demise. He will give them over to their perverse mindset, and their memory will be but dust. His heart is merciful. Luke one fifty says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. God hears the pain of those who trust in him. He is ready to deliver them from their troubles, but we have to be humble in our approach. Since God has been hearing men's prayers since the beginning of time, his ears have not become burdened, that we may think. His heart has not become hardened, and his mercy has not been diminished. In verse 18, his hands are righteous. It is the character of God's righteousness, whose prayers God will hear, that they are of broken heart and contrite spirit, and humility and an awareness of their need for a Savior. Why? Because they understand their shortcomings and their weaknesses, and they're willing to humble themselves before a holy God. And finally, the protection of God. Many are, afflictions of, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. 
These final verses in this psalm, David reassures us of God's care and protection. David does not say that the righteous will be trouble-free, but rather when they face trouble, and though they will, the Lord will deliver them not only from a few, but it says from all of them. Now, his definition of all may not be our definition of all. There are people in this room who are constantly praying, God, deliver me from this. This isn't all. But from God's perspective, it is, because he has a different plan. We often wish we could escape troubles, that they may go away. They may be the pain of loss, of failure, of anxiety, frustration. Maybe you got a diagnosis from your doctor. God's promises do not change during those difficult times. He will become the source of our comfort, our courage, the source of our strength, and the source of our deliverance. Sometimes the delivery seems far away, but we are being delivered through the problem, not around it sometimes. But in any case, God will deliver us from them all. The wicked are judged. In verse 21, God has the final say. His judgment is forthcoming, whether now or later. It's guaranteed. The evil that seems to be unchecked in our world will someday see the courtroom of heaven with the righteous judge presiding. Their evil ways will eventually be their undoing. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Boy, do we like to get involved in that one. It's not fair, Lord. It's not right. I don't, I don't think that's right. I want to get involved and fix it. God says, go ahead. But there's consequences. Leave it to me. I'll take care of it. God will judge those that were and are against his own. Sometimes it seems that we're all alone in this world. And we're hated. And persecuted and belittled because of our faith. But be comforted that God will have the final, ultimate say-so. And finally, in verse 22, the righteous are redeemed. Finally, we will be redeemed not only in a temporary way, but ultimately, eternally, to those of us who know him personally, who've called upon his name. Our final destination is not the cold ground of this world, but into the loving presence of our wonderful Lord. Those who find refuge in his salvation will be forever in his kingdom. And as we serve God together, I hope that we can encourage one another in our faith and not lose sight of the great reward that awaits us. A well-known speaker started off his seminar by holding up a $100 bill. There was a room of about 200 people, and he asked them, who would like this $100 bill? Well, hands started going up. He said, well, I'm going to give you this $100 bill, but first, let me do this. And he proceeded to crumble the $100 bill up. And he asked, who still wants it? Still hands went up in the air. Well, what if I do this? He dropped it on the ground and he stamped on it, picked up the crumbled, dirty bill. Now who wants it? Still hands went into the air. And then he said, my friends, we have all learned a very valuable lesson. No matter what I did to this $100 bill, you still wanted it. 
And why? Because it didn't decrease in value. It's still worth $100. So many times in our lives we are dropped, crumbled, and ground into the dirt by the decisions we made or the circumstances that come our way. We feel as though we are worthless. But no matter what has happened or what will happen, we will never lose our value. Dirty or clean, crumbled or finely creased, we are still priceless to those who do love you and to the God who has given his life for you. His promise is our inheritance. His sacrifice is our redemption. His resurrection is our eternal life. His heaven now becomes our home. Remember this, count your blessings and not your problems. It took only eight amateurs some 120 years by God's design to build this boat called an ark. It took hundreds of professional men and design to build the Titanic. If God brings you to it, he will bring you through it. God will either lighten your load or strengthen your back. The worth of our life comes not what we do or who we are, but it's by the value God puts on us through the giving of his son on our behalf for the only payment of our debt of sin, and that was his sacrifice. Corey Ten Boom writes this, Worry is carrying tomorrow's load with today's strength, carrying two days at once. It is moving into tomorrow ahead of time. Worrying does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. And finally, I want to encourage you with this last 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 18. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side by trouble, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Christ, so that the life of Christ may also be seen in our bodies. We live under constant danger of death because we serve Christ, so that the life of Christ will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. And down in first 16, that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs all of them that will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things we cannot see. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. I pray that this morning that we take David's psalm as we look and understand God's care for us his deliverance in any circumstances that we face, have faced, or will face. We don't know what tomorrow brings. God does. 
That's what we need to do. We need to put our trust and faith in what he knows, not what we think. For God is over all these things. And he loves us. And he loved us enough to send his son as a sacrifice for all our weaknesses, all our troubles, all our misunderstandings, all our stupidity, everything. And it's called sin. And he took that on himself at Calvary that one time. And that one time was enough because at the end he said, it's finished. So no matter what you've done, what you will do, it's forgiven. But you have to put your trust and faith in Christ. And you know what that takes? Humility. Because you have to admit that you're not perfect. And you have to admit that you're a sinner. And you have to admit that you need saving. My prayer is is that you would humble yourself to that point and understand the value that you have that on that cross, Christ gave his life for you. Father, we thank you so much for your word today. Thank you, Lord, for the promises of this passage. Thank you for allowing David to struggle so that, Father, we have an example of how you met him at every corner. Lord, we, we are so thankful that you are God who is over all things, that you care for us, Father. Do You hear things, you see things, you understand things, even before we do. Help us put our trust in your faithfulness, not in the faith of men or situations or circumstances, Lord, but in the faith of the God who created all things. Lord, I ask your blessing on those who are here this morning, especially for the moms who are represented, Lord. We thank you for their servant's heart over the many years. And the new moms who are just beginning, ask that you give them strength and patience and bring other moms alongside them, Lord, to encourage them. I'm thankful, Father, that you've allowed those ladies and women in our life, whether they be our grandmothers or moms, sisters. Lord, thank you. And we know that not all moms are perfect. We understand that because we're imperfect. But by your grace and your mercy, Lord, we ask you to bless them today. In Jesus' name, amen.